Welcome to Inside Divorce. My name is Hindel Grossman, the owner of a law firm called Grossman & Associates LTD located in Newton and Nantucket, Massachusetts. Hello, my name is Hindel Grossman and welcome to Inside Divorce. Today I'm sitting with Mark Magnaca, a former client of the firm. He was divorced in 2012 and he has lots of stories to tell us about lessons that he's learned about being a divorced dad. So that what we're going to talk about today is one thing, two topics. First, how much time does it take to be a good parent? And the second topic is the experience of step-parenting. And so we're going to talk about two, those two uh, topics today. Hi, Mark. Hi, Hendel. How are you? Great. So tell me why you're interested in, in talking about your experience. Well, I'm interested in talking about it primarily because I know uh, what a difficult time it is for people who are still at the beginning part of this journey. And I really do wish that I knew what I know now then, because like so many things in life, you don't know what you don't know. So as a result of my agreeing to a certain agreement that had a lot of vagueness in it, it actually set up conflict that I believe in retrospect was largely unnecessary because of a lack of legal precision that gave direction to everybody about what does this sentence really mean. Okay. So just to be clear to the audience, we did not represent That's right. It was before I met Hindell. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Right. The precision came when I hired this firm. <laughs> Thank you for that clarification. Yeah, so we worked with you in modifying and enforcing some of the terms of uh, your original divorce agreement from 2012. And so tell us a little bit about your kids, first of all. Sure. Well, I have a, a 20-year-old son and a 15-year-old daughter. And they were younger when you got divorced. They were younger, <laughs> yeah. So this yeah. is 2019, so it was seven years ago. They were eight and 13, respectively. And what I thought was that there would be a way to have a peaceable relationship with my former wife so that we could be able to transfer the children back and forth and really have a reasonableness as the framework around how to transfer and how to be able to spend time together. And it turned out that that was really a very big challenge. And so what I, what I recognized is that the body of law that has been built up in this country, in the arena of divorce, in the same way that women have experienced a very real discrimination in the corporate realm and in the military and lots of other places, not with, a I, I believe, a specific intent to discriminate against them, but rather just the convention of how it all played out, mm -hmm. In the same way, in 2019 still, there are in many states, including Massachusetts, a bias that women should be the primary caregivers and not men. And, you know, for a, a large part of history, that was true. And in, and in some cases, it may still be true today. But my belief is that um, the judges that I've interacted with are a lot more open-minded to the fact that fathers bring a lot to the table. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really incumbent on, on people going through this process to recognize that despite whatever your feelings are for the other side, if you will, depriving your children in those situations, which is the vast majority of situations where both parents are fit. I'm, I'm not talking about where someone has a, you know, a major drug problem or something like that, but the vast majority, you have two largely fit parents to be able to care for their children. Yeah. The fact that fathers are in many cases pushed aside or relegated to quote some minimal amount of time also known 
as a quality time, uh-huh. I think is a big mistake. Uh-huh. So it's not really quality time. It's just limited time to build a serious, important relationship with your children. That's true. And I would tell you that I believe that the very phrase quality time is actually a myth. Uh-huh. I think that anybody who understands anything about having a relationship with another human being knows that a relationship is a function of two things, time and attention. So you got to have time with somebody and you got to be able to, to share you know, your attention, which in, said in a different way is being present with that person. And the rub with quality time, at least in the context of divorce, in my experience, is that if you're a kid, and just as a point of reference, I went through my parents getting divorced. So it was the last thing that I ever wanted for my children to go through. But what I recognized, both as from my experience as a child and then later as an adult, is that we don't build relationships on demand. It, it just doesn't happen that way. So the idea that you can pick your, your daughter up from school at three o'clock, let's say, and you have her with you until six, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, a ride home, she's tired from the end of the day, and maybe not in the mood to even talk about anything. And then you, you, you eat dinner, and then you have to like rush through dinner and then jump back in the car and go to, you know, make this drop off. It, it, um, it's not natural. It's, it's exactly the word. It's not natural. And you know, what I found, Hindell, is that what most intact families take for granted is the mere process of proximity. Mm-hmm. The, the notion that when you live with somebody, and, and what that means is you generally you eat together, and maybe you watch TV together, or you throw a ball in the backyard together. There's all of these things. You know, you're banging on the door because I need to take a shower and that person's taking yeah. a shower. There's just all of the stuff that happens. The spontaneity of the, a relationship. Yeah, like that's how you build a relationship. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm suggesting is to, to anybody going through this process who accepts the idea that, well, I'll have like three hours a week and that will be sufficient. I'm here to tell you in my experience, it's not. And I can't tell you what the right number is, but I can tell you in general, if you don't have the capacity to stay over to stay over for a night, or in my case, at least a couple of nights on a weekly basis, then you are missing out on the magic mm-hmm. that happens. And in my own experience, I can tell you, there've been so many times where we're just kind of hanging out and then spontaneously something comes up that I never could have predicted or I couldn't have orchestrated for that matter. And uh, it's, it's just that moment where I'm able to play the role of parent mm-hmm. and and intervene or answer a question or ask a question or any one of a number of different things that I wouldn't be able to do. And it turns out that for me, it's it's probably, it's one of the most important roles other than maybe than being a spouse. To me, one of the most important roles that any of us have in our life. As parents. And yeah. Yeah. Parents play a essential role for kids and kids need parents in their lives. It's true. They may say that they don't. Well, or act when, like they don't want any parent saying, telling them what to do. Right. And anyone going through a divorce with teenage children, it's hard to know how much of the tension that may exist is a function of the fact that you're a parent going through a divorce or divorced. And then how much of it is, it would have happened anyway. Yeah. But, but it, there, there's sort of this additional layer that it's easy to add on to yourself when you're already beating yourself up to say that you know, now, now this is a problem too. Well, it's also, you know, it's one more challenging relationship. If you've gone through a divorce and, you know, first of all, people don't usually divorce immediately upon the 
beginning of conflict. There's a, maybe years that go on of conflict or isolation in a marriage before people get to that point. And then you have the divorce process, which easily takes a year. Right. And so now it's years of relationship conflict, and you don't want it with your kids. It feels like you, you know you have it with a spouse that you're divorcing, but you don't want to have that kind of relationship with your children. But inevitably, that could happen, not just by virtue of the child's age, that is, they're a t- difficult teenager or a challenging one, but by virtue of the fact that they feel the child feels conflicted about the parents and how to address or live with, or treat, you know, both both parents separately. You know, Hindel, I know of um, certain divorced fathers who operated under the framework that given the conflict that existed, that the best solution that they could come up with at the time was basically to disappear mm-hmm. and to not fight the fight, the emotional fight, the monetary fight, like just not fight and say, in effect, you know what? I'm going to back off, and when my kids are 18, I'll have a chance to have a relationship. And unfortunately, at least in the examples that I know of, the relationship never, it just never gelled. And so it's sort of like by the time the child turns 18, the die is largely cast. So you have this time to make a difference when it matters and build the experiences and the memories and all that stuff. And then by the time they're 18, you, you either have it or you don't have it. But to try you can't to man- start at age, it's really hard, you know, to manufacture something when the child has basically grown up. Yeah, and and that parent's been absent for a long time, potentially. Right, they've given up. Yeah, and I and I understand. I, I have empathy for the people who would give up, but I, I would tell you this, and and you know, my my meeting you was absolutely a game changer in in not only my life but in the life of my children because I had accepted to some extent that this is just the way it is. And what happened is in meeting you, you helped me have a new framework for what was possible. And what I didn't recognize is just how important the right legal mindset is when you are in this kind of dynamic. Mm-hmm. And they quite frankly, not, not dissimilar to two different doctors. One doctor is like, it's hopelessly terminal. There's nothing we can do. And the other one says, actually, there's an experimental treatment that I want you on. Mm-hmm. In the same way with the law, some people read the paragraph and say, well, that's the way it is. And other people say, wait a minute, that's just a starting point. Uh-huh. Well, I'm glad it worked out for you. It was great working together with you. We had some twists and turns Indeed. and some challenges, and um, it included some third parties that were in place, uh, such as a parenting coordinator. So you want to talk a little about that experience in, in your case? Yeah, you know, I think in, in uh, my case, what the court recommended because of the conflict that existed around just performance with the existing agreement, which really was pretty black and white. It named specific dates, children with father this day and children with mother that day. But it turns out, just like in geopolitics, you can say that there's a border crossing between two countries and there should be sort of free trade. But if one of those countries chooses to put the gate down and then you can't pass freely, well, possession is nine-tenths of the law. And so if the children don't come, which is ultimately what happened for me, regardless of whether the belief is, well, they don't want to come and therefore that's why I'm not sending them, or I don't want them to come and that's why they're not getting them. Regardless of that, it took really a, a parenting coordinator to act, in my words, as a, as a diplomat to try to communicate. If you stay with the geopolitical metaphor, however, just like in diplomacy, diplomacy works great. As Ronald Reagan, I think, rightly pointed out, when um, you've got the, the capacity to enforce it. He called it trust and verify. Well, and, and he also had the, uh, 
the army and the and the military to be able to enforce these agreements with at that time the Soviet Union. And what I've learned now is that if you don't have the means or you don't have the talent to help enforce an agreement, then the agreement doesn't mean anything. So the parenting coordinator was designed to help, and I will say that in my own experience, I think the parenting coordinator, as as often may happen, just developed a genuine affection for my children and really did want what was best for them. But then at at a certain point, when the person acting like an umpire calls a strike and uh, to, to switch to a baseball metaphor and, and the batter says, well, that wasn't a strike. And the umpire says, yeah, it was. Yeah. Then uh, in our current legal system, you can get rid of that parenting coordinator. Uh-huh. And that, that was about the point at which you and I met in my story. Yes. Yeah. Parenting coordinators play an important role in some regards and can be very useful in helping avoid conflict if both parents buy into the concept of giving the, the parenting decision-making to a third person right. that neither of them really know and know, know how to, whether they should trust or not. Right. And occasionally that parenting coordinator will decide in favor of the father's side or the, another time might be the mother's side. Obviously, they have to make kind of neutral decisions based on the circumstances. But it's important for both mother and father to respect that decision and live with it. That's when it works best. If one of the parents doesn't like a recommendation from the parent coordinator and then tries to get rid of the parent coordinator as not being kind of favorable to them, then the whole system falls apart. Well, I would add to that, Hindel, that, you know, you you could make a case that the phrase that is most often thrown around for people who haven't been through this is, um, well, we're acting in the best interest of the children. Yes. And if you think about in every political conflict where a person uh, takes over a country, Underneath it all, they always say, well, this is in the best interest of the people. Uh All the power, I'm taking it, but it's in the best interest of the people. And what I'm here to tell you is, who can really say? Let's face it, the court doesn't want to try to make a decision about what's in the best interest of the children. But most human beings would tell you, if you know anything about anthropology, that what's in the best interest of the children is for for them to have time with both of their parents. Mm -hmm. And uh, I recognize the court, there's a limit to what it can do to enforce the ability for people to play nice. But I will tell you that ultimately, I think when you're in a dynamic where one or more of the parties won't play nice, the court being able to exercise the authority, like you're either going to play nice or one of you is not going to see these kids at all. That is usually enough of a shock for people to say, knock it off. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. The valuable role that a parenting coordinator plays and a guardian ad litem commonly known as a GAL, is that they can be witnesses and they can testify, and often judges take their word with some great weight because they're supposed to be neutral. Right. And, you know, the GAL or the parent coordinator might not be 100% on one parent side or 100% on the other parent side. Usually it's some variation of percentages for each. But at least the judge feels like a GAL or a parent coordinator as a witness brings in some objectivity. Right. That's not just the say-so of one parent on the witness stand or the other parent on the witness stand. So that's where I think they're really helpful. They can't necessarily solve all the problems along the way. All those decisions about you know who gets the kids for a particular special event that was unanticipated by the parenting plan. Right. <laughs> Just that the problem is that life happens. The parenting plans need flexibility. But for purposes of the agreement, there has to be some certainty in there about which parent gets the children on which day. And you have to have two co- cooperating parents really for that separation agreement and the parenting plan within it to work the best. Well, that's But if it. you don't have someone cooperating on the other side, then the 
flexibility doesn't really work that well. Well, you know, if you think about it in general, just like in business, going all the way back to, to Adam Smith, he said, you know, there's an invisible hand that moves men to action. And, and what he meant was it moves people, men and women, to action in their own self-interest. Mm-hmm. And if you put two people together and say, look, I need this Saturday because so, so-and-so is getting married. It's actually your time. Yeah. But can I swap you for another time? Yeah. Or, or I'll give you a credit and there'll be another time where you'll need one of my time. Like, that's why business works in general. But look, in some cases, business ends up in court and people have conflict as well. Right. So I can tell you that the, the point you just made about the parenting coordinator really does matter because in my case, ultimately, in my work with you, the ability for a parenting coordinator who, again, acting as an umpire, and who really was trying to be as fair as possible to both sides of the equation. But ultimately, after calling, let's call it three strikes in a row, that were just clear and present misses on on the agreement, then all of a sudden, in that context, uh, to have the judge call that parenting coordinator forth and say, I want to hear your perspective on what happened. Mm And, and in that parenting coordinator telling the truth, mm-hmm. it changed the trajectory of my, my ability to have this relationship that I have with my kids. Yeah, which was really helpful in your case. That parenting coordinator wasn't able to do it herself, you know, change the course of the Correct. case herself between the two of you. Correct. But on the witness stand, she did because she made observations as a witness. And for what it's worth, she actually, uh, just to show you the, the level of commitment that this uh, parenting coordinator had, with whom I, I still have the tremendous respect. I had the good fortune to get remarried in 2014. And um, it was really important to me that my two older children were able to attend our wedding, which was out of state. And to her credit, she came back from her own vacation early and she flew with my children to my wedding. Above so and beyond could, what you can expect any person I mean, yeah, that is do. a pretty high bar. Yeah. So I think, you know, against that backdrop, it was pretty clear that this was a person who truly did have, to the best of her ability, the children's best interests. But at some point, so she helped manage it for years. And then at a certain point, what I would say is the dynamic was punching above her weight class. Yeah. And, and she just didn't have the authority any longer to be able to enforce it. And that's when ultimately... Your help with the court changed it. Okay. What lessons learned would you like to talk about from, from that other than be persistent, don't give up on your kids, don't wait till they turn 18 and hope that you can restart a relationship that's been absent for many years? Well, the first one is read very carefully the agreement. And as I said, this was not an agreement you created, but too often my experience is that lawyers use a save as and a Microsoft Word template for divorce decree. And there's little gotchas in there in the state of Commonwealth of Massachusetts, such as emancipation at age 23. I don't know of anything else in common law that uses the age of 23 for emancipation. I know of 18, I know of 21, but the notion that your child is not emancipated until age 23 well, that one snuck by me. Mm-hmm. I, I did not get it. Mm-hmm. And I was told, well, don't worry about it. You can go back and renegotiate that. Well, be careful with that. That would be my advice because yeah. it's, again, hard to negotiate with people that you have conflict with. Yeah. That's number one. And number two, you know, in the final analysis, I, I know that in my own grandfather's case, who lived to be 99 and was really very with it right until the end, he said, you know, what really matters is the relationships you have with other people. And you may succeed in your business and you may 
have money in the bank and you may travel to wonderful places and, and do all kinds of things during your life. But in the end, when it's over, for most of us, it's the relationship we have with other people. And it turns out that for most of us who actually have the good fortune in my world to be parents, well, then the relationship you have with your children may be the most important relationships you have with anybody in your life. And by the way, one of the longest relationships you have with anybody in your life. Sure, that's important. God willing. Yeah. I know I've said my kids are older than yours, but I've said that um, raising my two kids are the two most successful projects I've ever had. I 100% agree. You know, and there was a time that there were big challenges and I didn't know that they would be successful, but in their own ways, they're doing what they want and they're healthy and they're grounded and Seeing it takes you, a lot of effort. The photo, Hindel, of you at your daughter's wedding not long ago was to me like seeing an athlete up on the stand at the Olympics receiving a gold medal. Really, really like that kind of feeling like, yeah. wow, there was a lot that went into this. And and to have that sort of sort of sense of like, I got here and and they're gonna be okay, despite also having gone through a divorced family, right? Yeah. I think that it's easy for us as parents to sort of take those moments for granted, meaning in how special it is not just for our children, which is the, the lens through most of us are looking, but really how special it is one degree back, right, yeah. from the, the relationship between all you went through as parent and child to get to that spot. Milestones are important, right? You remember what what came before it when, yeah. when you reach that milestone. You do. Yeah, you certainly do. What took to get there. Appreciate and, your and noticing will, the pride on my face. Well, and I will I will tell you this. The other thing I noticed, and this is one of the things I think truly differentiates you, is that, look, I'm not saying there aren't divorce attorneys or attorneys who specialize in these kinds of matters that have never experienced any of this and are not also very qualified. But by and large, my experience is that... Um, in order to have the bedside manner, if you will, the, the compassion, someone who has enough vulnerability to be able to expose a little bit of their own personal experience, it's, it makes it a lot easier than feeling like you're operating in a purely clinical environment. And so the notion of watching your attorney demonstrate the power of forgiveness in, in, a, in, a, in a family kind of dynamic, it goes a long way without saying anything about realizing that the way you get to that gold medal at the end is to practice that great art of forgiving. Also the great art of picking your battles. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a big one. That is a big one. William, William James said, uh, wisdom is knowing what to overlook. And man, that, that truer words have not been spoken. Oh, if you can fight everyone, you'd be exhausted. All right, so let's talk about our second topic briefly, which is um, step parenting. Now you are not a step parent, right? I am not. A step parent, that is true. But you live with one. I do. You're married I to do. one. I am married to one and, and really a fabulous one. And you know, this this is really just one of those observations. I'm not a, a step parent, but as I've watched my wife, who we're coming up on, on seven years together and, and five years of being married, I met her just as a point of reference after our divorce proceedings. And what I recognized is that even though she was not, quote, the other woman, because there was no other woman yeah. in my case, even though that was not the case, because that brings its own unique challenges. It does. In this case, yeah. my wife was from Canada, mm -hmm. and so she wasn't even in this country, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's a, a totally different dynamic. But what I've, what I've recognized as I've watched is the, the, the balance, really, of 
developing an affection for children that you have proximity to, of, of whom you are part of their life, but also being very mindful and very respectful. And, and my wife is very clear about the fact that she in no way is trying to usurp anything in terms of the, the role of my children's mother at all. Having said that, when children are living in two homes, and if, if one home has a certain set of rules and another home has a different set of rules, and I'll just use taking your shoes off before you walk through the house as an example, mm-hmm. in some cultures, you don't do that. In other cultures, you do. So as a kid, it can be a little disorienting. Say, so, well, why do we have to do this, mm-hmm. right? And, and then recognizing the need to both explain it and then enforce it to say, like, this is what we do here now. And I recognize that that means that you, as a, as a kid, have to toggle in, a, in effect between two different cultures. Almost like if you live in Europe and you travel from Italy to Germany, the way they do things between those two countries are very different. They both have their own charm. Yeah. But if you are an Italian, you keep asking the question, why do the Germans do it this way or vice versa, right? It's, it's just frustrating instead of recognizing there's two different cultures. So I would say that, that truly being a step-parent is probably the hardest job in America. I think most step-parents would probably agree with that. I think it starts with almost the cultural framework around, you know, from Cinderella and, and even think about even Disney stories. What kind of stepmother? It's the wicked stepmother. That's right? right. They're all wicked. Right. And of course, usually in that situation, the wicked stepmother is where the biological mother has is deceased. Uh-huh. Right. So that, that's a whole different dynamic. True. But in so many of the people who would be listening to this, where, where both are, are alive, yeah. it's, it is a different dynamic. So I would say that just being aware of how hard that role is, being open-minded and recognizing that most parents have to give a lot in order for kids to feel comfortable in this new culture. And I truly believe, and I've already seen that over time, when the children get to see the step parent and they get to see them in, in a lot of difficult situations, that's very clear they had nothing to do with. It's, it's not their fault. They're not, they're not a cause of it. They, they were thrown into a situation. And I think when you get to see somebody you know, they say when you when you squeeze an orange, you find out what's inside and you see that person under pressure and, and they're still showing up and they're still, you know, being present at meals and making food and, and, and caring for children who are not biologically theirs. And disrespectful sometimes. And absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it's just one of those things that it's it's a hard thing to go through. But I really do believe that when it's over, when you when you get to 18 or 21, as the case might be, or 23 in Massachusetts, <laughs> you get to kind of look back. I think many children will and recognize that that person who they maybe came in with a chip on their shoulder to begin with, even before they ever met the person, actually played an important role in their life. It's like having, if they can open their minds to it, it's having two mothers, one extra parent. An extra parent. An extra parent that might bring something actually special and unique to the relationship. And by the way, someone who can maybe bring a perspective Mm -hmm. that neither of your biological parents can. Right. If, and that all makes sense to us as adults. It's just sometimes if you're a teenager and you're hearing that, you're like, yeah, so what? Yeah. So many interesting dynamics, aren't there? There really are. <laughs> Learn to teaches us a lot about um, ourselves and human nature, about how to get along, how to avoid conflict if possible. Right. Well, fortunately, we only control ourselves. So thank you, Mark. It's been a really interesting conversation on the topics of uh, how to how much time do you need to be a good parent and the role of a step-parent after divorce? So thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. 
If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman & Associates. You'll find a competent and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals. Email me at hindell at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L. Or call us at 617-969-0069. Thank you for listening.